so I could tell it's the new year even without looking at my calendar. Simply from my email inbox, beliefnet.com, eHarmony, match.com, all promising to help me find the love that I've been looking for this very year. (laughs) Even though, actually, it was almost five years to the date that my wife and I met online, and I've been out of the dating pool ever since. And yesterday, I could also tell that we were in the new year. See, normally when I go to the small gym that's in our apartment building, there's maybe, maybe in the space of 45 minutes to an hour, one other person in there with me. Yesterday, there were four other people in there with me, all trying to no doubt make good on those new New Year's resolutions. And there was this one woman just, I mean, just bless her heart, absolutely. You could tell she hadn't exercised in a while, and she was on that treadmill huffing and puffing and red-faced, and after about 10 minutes, she just hopped right off. But she kept going. And she looked at me on the elliptical that I was working. I use the elliptical because even at the age of 38, these knees are just, they're shot. They're showing real signs of wear and tear. And she looked at the elliptical machine next to the one that I was on, and I could tell she was a little hesitant, sort of like she, you know, dare I try? Dare I give it a go? And so I stopped my own workout, and I said, you know, hop aboard, and I showed her how to program it. And she was just about to start to pedal, and I still sense a little bit of fear. And I got to tell you, I think you all know this, the gym, that can probably be one of the most intimidating places in the world, especially if you don't feel comfortable there. And sometimes even if you go there every day, you still feel uncomfortable there. So I shared with her, you know, these words that I think is, you know, pretty much the best advice anyone's ever given me. Just one day at a time, (laughs) one step at a time. This is how it starts. And so she cycled up next to me, right in the elliptical. She climbed on and side by side, stride by side, we got going. We obviously were not covering any actual ground, but we were still, both of us, making progress. In this new year, in this new message series, that's what I want to focus on. How we as parts of this congregation, how we can make real, honest, authentic progress together. And so I'm going to place the emphasis over these next four weeks on the real in the reality, in our hopes and in our fears. What's actually here? Not just some flights of fantasy or fancy, the kind of New Year's resolutions that we've all made, and I imagine you've made too, that are discarded by about January 15th. The real kinds of opportunities to recognize what we fear and also what we hope for, and through that bring about our deepening and our transformation in this life. So today to start, what I want to recognize that I think we all can right now is just how much there is in this life right now. Just how much. The sheer abundance of both things that we might hope for and things that we are frightened of. Lots of heights and potentially lots of ditches. And our time recalls another. You've heard these first words probably over and over again throughout your life. But just listen to the full passage. It's the start of Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It was, say it with me, the best of times, it was the worst of times. Anyone know the next line? Good. (laughs) It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. 
We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Those extremes of contrast, those highs and lows, it fits so well what Dickens was writing about, obviously, but it fits our time here, this moment when we walk the earth. So much to hope for and so much that perhaps wants us, maybe makes us want to crawl in a hole and just hide away a little bit. So much potential to fulfill and so many potential ditches to fall into. It reminds me of one of my favorite stories that originally comes from the Buddhist tradition, but it's one of those that gets told in so many different traditions because it's so universal that over time it's been shaped by so many hands. I put my own shape to it as well, too. It's a story of a man who finds himself one day walking across a big, big plain, and he spies out on the horizon what looks like a dust cloud. The only thing is that dust cloud is growing and growing and growing. And actually, wherever he walks, it is following him. And eventually what he recognizes, that's not a dust cloud. Or actually, it is a dust cloud, but it's being kicked up by a pack of hungry dogs who have set their sights in on him. And they're gaining on him. And so he runs. And he runs and he runs and he runs, but they're getting closer. And finally finds himself on the edge of a cliff. And there's no place else to go. So he grasps this little little root, this little branch that's hanging out from the rock face wall and slowly lets himself down on it, hoping that he might find some peace and some safety at least, and maybe the dogs will find something else to eat eventually. Well, when he's there, he recognizes that he can't keep the hold on this branch forever, and so he looks below him, and, and there's a ravine down there, and he thinks, well, perhaps I could jump all the way down there and maybe just break an ankle. Maybe I won't kill myself. Maybe eventually I'll be able to walk away from this. But the only problem is, is that he sees that down below, there are bears <laughs> circling, waiting for him. He's going to be dinner above. He's going to be dinner below. And that root, this little tiny branch that he's holding on to, I mean, his hands are getting tired. And the branch, he can start to see, eventually it's going to give way and pull away from the rock wall. Looking up, peril. Looking down, danger. And he thinks maybe this is it. And at that very moment, he decides to look neither up or down but instead looks straight ahead. And he sees growing out right next to the place where the root is, a little bush with these tiny little red berries. And he thinks, what the hell? I might as well taste them even if they're poisonous because look where I am. And he opens his mouth and he extends his lips and his tongue and he takes these tiniest berries in his mouth. And they are the most delicious thing he has ever, ever tasted. And he smiles. So what's the moral of this story? Is it that you ought to remember to have your final snack before you are someone else's meal? That's one reading of it, potentially. But I think it's this. It's by the famed, if you follow this Variety, this school of Judaism, the famed Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav. He was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidic Judaism. Rabbi Nachman taught that all the world is a narrow bridge 
And the point is not to be afraid. All the world is a narrow bridge, and the point is not to be afraid. I think that's the moral of what our cliff dweller, actually our cliff hanger on, can recognize. Maybe this morning you are feeling the narrowness of the bridge and are doing your best not to be afraid. Or maybe you are just with all your might, with all your strength, hanging on to that root, but still you can taste those delicious berries. You are experiencing a beautiful and gracious yes, while at the same time you absolutely are experiencing that narrow and dusty no. Thing is, both the yes and both the no are real. Both are true, both are here, both are amongst us. John Keats, who was one of the first romantic poets, he developed a word to describe Shakespeare. I mean, Shakespeare for him and for many people was the absolute apex of what a human being could do when taking pen and putting it to paper. He said Shakespeare had what he called negative capability, which actually is far more positive than negative capability sounds like. Negative capability is this. It is the opportunity, the ability to exist in uncertainty. That place where contradictory, not just ideas, but contradictory experiences can coexist and you don't have to solve them too quickly. You don't have to reach for a too quick resolution. Keats said that negative capability is the hallmark, the sign of a truly first-class temperament, a first-class intellect. I want to extend that a little bit this morning as well. I want to say the sign of a first-class and developing spiritual life, a mature spirituality, actually the hallmark of all mature spirituality, is what we can call paradox capability. The ability to let opposites play within us and within our life, that there can be a firm yes and a firm no at the same time, and we move beyond that desire that we all have to say it's either this or it's that. It is one or the other. Paradox capability has the opportunity and indeed the committedness to say it is both this, this and that. It is both yes and no. Ultimately, to be able to live deeply in this world, we need to be able to say the yes and the no and recognize that they're here in our midst right now in this very moment. Now, we do this by allowing things to exist alongside any of you remember Yertle, Yertle the Turtle, Dr. Seuss? Yertle the Turtle had to get up to the top. He believed that the ultimate value in life came through stacking. What was real was stackable. And what was good was what was on top of the stack. Now, Dr. Seuss being Dr. Seuss, a great moral in the story, it all came tumbling down. Yertle the turtle didn't get what he wanted to. I think the way that we exist in allowing the yes and the no to coexist and healthfully so for us and allow us to grow is to move from that Yertle the turtle mentality to the alongside mentality. It's kind of like, and for me this comes very much to mind because I love to cook. It's like the well-balanced plate. Everything has its place on the plate. It's not all just glommed up together. You're not just shoveling it into your mouth. Everything has a place on the plate. I remember this particularly true a number of years ago when I was visiting a Buddhist monastery and I engaged in the first time for what was called eating meditation. It was that we sit in silence and mindfulness and do nothing but engage the meal. 
I remember everything on that plate, a tiny little bowl of miso soup and four pieces of veggie sushi and one single rice cake. It took me 45 minutes to eat that while eating mindfully. And it was absolutely enough because everything had its place on the plate. It was, as I talked about in December, it was one of those dayenu moments. It was sufficient. It was enough. Think about instead how often many of us, and I say this myself too, when we're times of, when we're stressed, when we're overfilled, what do we say? I can't do anymore. I've got a full plate. I can't do anymore. My plate is so stacked so high that I can't possibly fit another thing on it. And I'm not telling you if you're busy to have to take another thing onto it. I'm talking about the kind of mentality that makes us say and makes us think a full plate is a bad thing. Think of it. There are millions, millions of people in this world who are dying physically for want of a full plate, a literal full plate. And there are millions more who don't go to bed hungry every night, who yearn for a full plate of meaning. Why then does that full plate have negative connotations? I think it's because we want to stack We want to stack the things up. We want to see how much higher we can get. We want perhaps to not trust that that plate's going to be filled for too long, so we will shovel it all down. We pile things on top of each other. I think replacing that full plate mentality with a different image, probably next to the serenity prayer, the most well-known prayer in the entire at least Western world. Psalm 23, part where it says, You anoint my head with oil, And what? My cup overflows. See, an overflowing cup says we're never going to be able to hold everything at one time that life gives us. It's going to overflow. It's going to run down. It's going to make a mess. And that's all right. When we have an overflowing cup and the mindset that can welcome an overflowing cup, we recognize it's okay. It's okay that ultimately things don't stack up and they do spill out. And that's as it should be. When we really take to heart this image of allowing things to exist alongside, we move beyond a kind of horse race image. You know, a horse race, it does not matter if the lead horse wins by half a width of a nose, they're still the winner. This first past the post way of looking at life where we have to declare a winner. See, it's a lie because that's not the way that life is. There isn't a predetermined finish line where we can say the race is absolutely over, except all the way up until death. And I hope none of us know the exact hour of that for us, for each of you. See, one day, if we have the racehorse mentality, the first past the post, we will say at the end of the day, well, there were slightly more pleasant things than unpleasant things this day. But the truth is that the unpleasant things don't go away. If the next day there are more unpleasant things than pleasant things, does that mean that the pleasant things have somehow disappeared? Ultimately, there is no all good or all bad. There is instead maturity or immaturity. There is maturity or immaturity. Some religious traditions call this kind of maturity getting the mind of eternity, which is ultimately just another way of saying they gain perspective, and we gain perspective upon our lives. The Jewish tradition, I love this word, one of my favorites, they call it chesed. It means steadfast 
love. Now, it comes out of, I'll give you a little bit of history right here. It comes out of the roots in the Israelite tradition in their relationship to God, the Israelites' relationship to God, which is to say their relationship with what was ultimate for them. Now, it's been described by a lot of scholars that the story of the relationship between the Israelites and their conception of the divine was a loving relationship, was a love affair. If so, and I believe it was, it was an absolutely dysfunctional love affair. (laughs) There is cheating. There are secrets. There's abuse of power. There's violence. There's promises made and promises broken and promises made and promises broken. It's either the boom of holiness or the bust of sin. Either or. God's approving yes or God's approving no. But one thing is very clear if you read the story of ancient Israel, and that's called the Bible, or at least the Hebrew Scriptures part of it. It's not working. It is not working under those terms. Boom, then bust, boom, then bust, boom, then bust. And so they have a new idea, and it comes out of the mouth of God, as they would understand it. But it exists in the hearts of humans and indeed inhabits that place where the divine and the human touch, and I think, are the same thing. They exist in those three most powerful words. I love you. See, ultimately, that's the new covenant that God and the Israelites set up. And it's in this word chesed. He said, we've been through these ups and downs. At least the mouth of God says that to the ancient Israelites. Let's try something new here. Because what's old is not working. We're going to forge an eternal covenant. Where we're going to be here for each other regardless. It's like that phrase, if you ever heard it, the patience of Job. If you ever hear that, the patience of Job. It's an absolute lie. It's one of the worst translations in the entire Bible. Job is not patient at all. Job is angling the entire book of Job. He is angling to get his day in the holy court. He wants to box with the divine. The better definition of what, God, of what Job is, is steadfast. He keeps in there. He sticks with that relationship, even as he doesn't understand it. And I must tell you, this chesed, this steadfastness, this is what the world needs now from all of us more than any other time I can remember. Your family needs you to be steadfast. This country needs you to be steadfast. I would say this congregation needs you, needs all of us to be steadfast, to have chesed, steadfast love. I'd say even more right now amongst us because there is a lot of struggling and a lot of pain out there. I hear it on message boards. I hear it in people's anxious phone calls. To really be the kind of light and charged full way of living, to receive people who come through these doors, and maybe you are one of them this morning, who are wondering if there is only fear and not hope. Steadfastness, steadfast love is what we can offer to people. The world's need people needs people who exist alongside, who can exist next to, not trying to climb up to the top of the pile and saying, I am up here, and I have won. It needs people who can live in the paradox and in the complexity of this moment and know the fear, and still even more than that, know what courage is. So I'm going to show you a slide right now. Any of you know what this is? 
This is one of the biggest cliches that there is. Everyone from JFK to Nixon said it to just about every new age teacher that there ever has been. Homer Simpson called it Christatunity. It is, we are told, the Chinese pictogram for crisis. And these two characters combine. One means danger and the other means opportunity. You ever hear that before? The Chinese pictogram means crisis, opportunity, danger, all thrown together. The only problem is it's not really right. It's not really correct. If you want to find out why it's not correct, go well, Google this. Well, actually, don't Google this. Uh, Google <laughs> crisis, opportunity, danger, Chinese. Google it. You'll find the Wikipedia page, and you will find in the first footnote a very annoyed sinologist, which is to say a teacher of Chinese history and language, a very annoyed sinologist berating Westerners for believing that the Chinese word for crisis is danger and opportunity put together. It actually more literally means just a crucial moment, just a dangerous time. And I think the folks on Wikipedia do have a point. It's kind of like those overeager teachers. They want to appeal to authority. And remember those old Calgon commercials from the 70s? Not the Calgon take me away, but the ancient Chinese secret one. Remember ancient Chinese secret? And it was kind of this sly parody on the fact that gullible Westerners want to, ooh, it's ancient Chinese secret, you know? This idea that somehow if it seems exotic, we will be more readily available to believe it. So that funny little parody aside, and the fact that this doesn't quite mean crisis equals danger plus opportunity, the exact meaning of the symbol aside, I do believe that no crisis or no crisis time is only that, just an opportunity to circle the drain, and that each of us is invited in times of crisis or danger to recognize that there are new opportunities as well. Sometimes we find in the most irregular of times or the most paradoxical of times that we are confronted by a world made strange and that the old answers to the old questions don't work anymore. See, when the world looks different, we are required to look at the world differently. Without expectation, and I think we all know this in our hearts anyway, but especially right now, it's crucial. Without expectation that there is a single magic bullet that there is real hope and real fear, and there is also false hope, and there is false fear. That's what I'm going to talk about next week, especially the ways in which false hope and false fear can make the crisis deepen and become even worse for us. For now, let us say it is sufficient for this. That if we truly have the kind of mindset that can say yes and no and hold them together, that we can say that our paradoxes don't require a solution, but instead paradoxes call forth our resolution. Not a New Year's kind of resolution, the kind that is forgotten so quickly by January 15th, but the kind of resolution that is chesed, that is steadfast. It requires our ability to commit to staying in the game. Robert Fulgham, the UU minister, the author of that most well-known book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, he said when he was challenged by a rabbi friend of his to pick one word that summed up all of human wisdom, he picked a Hebrew word, and it was this, Tim Shell. It's right in the very, very beginning of the book of Genesis. And it means very simply this, 
It may be. Maybe. Maybe yes. Maybe no. Both are options for our going forward. Possibility alongside the danger. Peril alongside the promise. Our call is to recognize that all of it is life. And so I wish you a happy, but even more, an honest new year. May, may you live in its blessing. Amen. Let's pray together. God of the holy and infinite may be. That our lives may be full, not to breaking point, but to the holding point. That it may be that our lives may be full of love, not to be held on to with fear, but shared with hope. That it may be that this congregation, this gathered people of faith and in community, will be there as a light and as a beacon to people who perhaps only right now feel that there is darkness and dread. May it be, may it be, that this year in its promise and in its peril will birth in us a new and more wonderful kind of being. The kind of being, in fact, that has been waiting for us all along and only has been waiting for us to recognize, to give our love, to be steadfast people. Stay with and practice that being in the world that is ultimately what the world needs. May it be so. And amen.